0: To another episode of Pem Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and this is the fourth episode in the fracture season of Pem Currents. This one focuses on the hand and fingers and all of the fractures that occur therein. If you haven't done so already, listen to the first three episodes on the forearm, the elbow, and the humerus, respectively. And I am proud to offer CME for this podcast. You can get Details on how this is being offered through Cincinnati Children's in the show notes and on PEMblog.com. All right, so let's talk about fractures of the hand and fingers. I decided to include the metacarpals, the phalanges, and the carpals, including the scaphoid here, though you could make the case that the scaphoid is kind of a wrist fracture, but we're, you know, really splitting hairs, and the wrist and forearm are so dense with content, so hence, that's why scaphoid is here. All right. so when you're worried about a fracture of the hand or fingers, you want to ask certain questions on history, and I thought it was important to start with those. You want to know hand dominance, and obviously kids won't know this before they get into a point where they're going to be doing writing, whether that's later in preschool or kindergarten. A two-year-old doesn't know which hand is their better hand. You want to know if they play sports. Are they attending school? Do they have a job? Obviously, how did they get injured? Was it a crush injury? Was it hyperextension? Was it an axial load? time since injury, and really the particular biomechanics. They can give you an idea of what kind of injury to suspect. And as expected, x-rays are the way to make the diagnosis of hand fractures. So if you suspect a finger fracture, you're going to get AP and true lateral views of the individual digit. If it's close to the joint, you'll get an oblique view, which is the third view. If you can't see a fracture because of superimposed digits, such as at the base of a proximal finger, then you'll probably need to get pictures of the entire hand. All metacarpal fractures require AP, lateral, and oblique views, and then a suspected scaphoid fracture needs a special scaphoid series, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit. So let's start with the carpals, and there's tons of mnemonics, and I'm not going to use any of the naughty ones because this is a PG podcast. So I like the one, straight line to pinky, here comes the thumb. So SLTPTTCH describes the bones of the carpals going in a circle from the scaphoid towards the pinky. So it's scaphoid, lunate, triquetrum, pisiform, trapezium, trapezoid, capitate, and hamate. And not all of those are important to consider when you're looking at hand fractures in pediatrics. And In fact, really the most important one, and the one gets all the press, is the scaphoid. So I will start there. Most often, the scaphoid bone is fractured from a fall on an outstretched hand, a Fouche injury. Generally, this is due to axial compression and wrist hyperextension. In skeletally mature patients, this is almost one out of five hand fractures, and it's seen usually in the population of uh, 15 to 30-year-olds, more in men than women. Two-thirds of scaphoid fractures are seen at the waist. This is the narrow central part. Classic exam is pain at the anatomic snuffbox. The history is rarely useful at making the diagnosis. So if a patient has wrist pain, you want to feel that, that snuff box for localized and maximal tenderness. There is a lower likelihood if there's no pain to palpation, the negative likelihood ratio is 0.15 there. And interestingly, if there's no pain with resisted supination of the forearm, the negative likelihood ratio is 0.09. The scaphoid series, as I mentioned earlier, is a PA, a true lateral, an oblique, and scaphoid views. And the scaphoid view is a posterior anterior image with the wrist fully pronated and an ulnar deviation. So an x-ray tech really has to know how to get the right image. False negative rates at x-rays for scaphoid fractures immediately after the injury are as high as 50%. Even x-rays at six weeks can miss fractures, so if you are really, really suspicious of a scaphoid fracture, ideally within 72 hours, a patient is getting a CT or an MRI. It's interesting that bone scan is okay as well, and it's actually the most sensitive, so 99%, but it's the least specific, 86% of the three. CT is far less sensitive than MRI, 72% versus 88%. So ultimately, you're not going to be getting a CT or an MRI most often in the ED. You can see an x-ray with an obvious fracture, or you can be highly suspicious. So even if you have a non-displaced or a possible scaphoid fracture, you know, a normal-looking x-ray but you're suspicious, it is a-okay to place the patient in a thumb spike a splint and definitely send them to ortho, preferably a hand specialist. Ortho will do surgery if the displacement is greater than a millimeter, and... Proximal fractures. If there's initially normal looking x rays, but you're still suspicious of an occult fracture, patients will stay in a splint for 10 to 14 days with follow up x rays. If you have an elite athlete, if it's work related, they may consider earlier imaging like that CT or the MRI. Surgery in adults does result in faster return to work, and 90% of PED scaphoids heal with immobilization but there's still a one out of three risk of non-union. So this is a really high risk fracture. And as you remember from medical school, that risk of non-union and osteonecrosis is due to a tenuous blood supply. So don't forget to think about a scaphoid fracture when there is pain at the distal forearm or wrist. And I'm not gonna ignore the other carpals, but let's be honest, they're very rare in kids. So only spend a moment. The triquetrum, you'll see pain on the ulnar side of the hand, distal to the ulnar styloid. The handmate is rarely fractured in kids, usually when it, somebody's hit by the handle of a sports stick or a, a club. And generally, these other carpals can be splinted for comfort and follow up with hand surgery. A voldar splint's okay, or an ulnar gutter or radial gutter, depending on which side the pain's at. All right, now let's move on to metacarpal fractures. These are incredibly common and are about 50% of all hand fractures. And the two main mechanisms that lead to fractures of the metacarpals are falling and punching, hopefully not at the same time. One of the main things that you need to look out for in examination is this notion of pseudo clawing. It's this hyperextension at the MCP joint when you're flexing at the proximal interphalangeal joint, the PIP joint. You also want to look for malrotation, comminution on x-ray, and shortening of greater than 5 millimeters. All of these necessitate immediate referral to an orthopedist or hand surgeon. So metacarpal fractures can be associated with skin trauma, and even a small laceration from what we would call a fight bite, you know, you punch somebody in the tooth, or a crush injury can be an open fracture. X-rays, as I mentioned earlier, are three views of the hand, so AP, lateral, and oblique. And you want to measure angulation of the bones using that lateral view. All right, so first let's talk about metacarpal neck fractures. This includes the boxer's fracture. It's a very testable injury. This is a fracture of the neck of the fifth metacarpal. And it usually happens because someone punches. Usually one of those big roundhouse punches. Interestingly, actual professional boxers don't get these because they know how to punch better. So it's kind of a misnomer. They are almost always dorsally angulated. And so normally the head to neck angle in the bone as you're just sitting there without it fractures is about 15 degrees. So the angle measurement on x-ray is baseline 15 degrees plus whatever the fracture is angulated. You must assess for rotational alignment. A semi-clenched fist, you got to look for scissoring. That's overlapping digits. Historically, the rule about how angulated is too angulated is as follows. So starting at the index and working your way down to the pinky, it's greater than 10 degrees, greater than 20 degrees, greater than 30 degrees, and greater than 40 degrees. So greater than 40 degree metacarpal neck angulation at the pinky finger, then you need reduction and referral to hand. Generally, if you're looking at a fracture that's greater than 30 degrees of the fourth and fifth, which is what you'll see most commonly, it's okay to refer to ortho or hand. So if you've got one that isn't angulated that much, Know that really reducing it might be challenging and it might not stay. So it's okay to splint with an ulnar gutter splint for those fourth and fifth metacarpal neck fractures. You want the MCP joint at 70 to 90 degrees with slight flexion at the PIP and DIP. A fracture of the second and third metacarpals, you'll put a patient in a radial gutter that incorporates the thumb. Any patient that has that pseudo-clawing that I alluded to earlier needs closed reduction. A hematoma block is a great technique, and most of these patients are older, so they have the wherewithal and ability to understand what you're doing. And what's described is the 90-90 method of reduction. So you flex the MCP, the PIP, and the DIP to 90 degrees each. You push them axially through the PIP joint, And then you apply a volar force over the fracture site to achieve reduction. If you've got a second and third metacarpal fracture with angulation, they fall up with ortho in three to five days. The fourth and fifth, they can fall up a little later, like a week or so. Generally, these heal well over four weeks. If you've got a fifth metacarpal fracture, which is, again, the most common, and it's angulated enough, Closed reduction may result in earlier return to optimal function. So if you've got one that's more than 40 degrees or so, attempting closed reduction or having that reduced in a few days with hand, you know, may help patients do a little better in the long run. So let's move further down the bone to the metacarpal shaft. And on exam, you're going to see pain, swelling, um, and or unwillingness to flex at the MCP. So you can have a transverse fracture of the shaft, which is usually from a direct blow, and that's where the bone is pulled into apex dorsal angulation. An oblique metacarpal shaft fracture happens when there's torsional forces, and a comminuted fracture is usually from a crush injury, and you also get lots of soft tissue injury generally. With a metacarpal shaft fracture, you accept less angulation than you do with the neck fracture. So for the index and middle, the second and third, less than 10 degrees. For the ring, less than 20. And for the pinky finger, less than 30 degrees. You lose about 8% of grip strength for every 2 millimeters of metacarpal shortening. And the pinky accounts for a large proportion of grip strength. So if you have a metacarpal shaft fracture with some foreshortening and angulation, that patient can have significant functional problems if you don't deal with it. Closed reduction is generally achieved at the bedside with a hematoma block, and closed reduction is much better at fixing angulation than it is at fixing shortening. Ortho is going to do surgery if it's open, if there's a neurovascular concern, which fortunately is incredibly rare, if there's malrotation, comminution, or shortening of greater than five millimeters. Splinting these injuries requires a gutter or a burkhalter type splint, and a halter is 30 degrees extension at the wrist, 90 degrees flexion of the MCP joints. On the volar aspect, the splint material extends to the MCP joint, and dorsally the material extends to the PIP joints to block extension of those. You want to splint with that MCP regardless of the type you pick at about 70 degrees flexion. These fractures need about four weeks of immobilization, and non displaced fractures get repeat x ray in one week. All right, now metacarpal head fractures. So that's rarer than the neck or shaft, and it's usually from a direct blow to the hand. In contrast to the neck and shaft fractures, the second index finger is most common as opposed to the fifth. The thumb is rarely injured um, in this situation. You get the same three x ray series as before. If you have an open fracture, Or if you're concerned for tendon lacerations, you obviously want to call hand surgery or ortho. Many of these fractures are intra-articular and comminuted and benefit from referral. So you can splint them with an ulnar or radial gutter, but you're probably going to want to have a metacarpal head fracture, especially in a skeletally mature patient, follow up with orthopedics. Let's move down to the thumb metacarpal. Majority of these fractures occur at the base, the proximal end. It's prone to displacement there because of the pull of the ligaments this is either from axial load, so jamming the thumb, or from hyperabduction or hyperflexion when a patient falls. You're going to get three views on x-ray, the lateral, the oblique, and the true AP view, which is called the Robert view. And there's some different types of fractures that um, have some eponyms. So the type one metacarpal thumb fracture is the Bennett fracture. This is a fracture dislocation of the base of the first metacarpal. The proximal or the ulnar fragment stays and the radial side subluxes and dislocates. Google it to get an idea of what it looks like. A type two thumb fracture is a Rolando fracture. It's kind of like a comminuted Bennett fracture. And the type three fracture is transverse and extra-articular. The type four is PED specific. And don't confuse this with Salter Harris, but it's a proximal physis fracture Generally, it's a Salter-Harris II. These are often non-displaced and heal well with four to six weeks of immobilization. But if you see rotational deformity at these physial fractures of the thumb metacarpal, then they need hand referral. Fractures of the shaft, neck, and head of the thumb metacarpal are more rare. In general, for thumb fractures, it's a good idea to use a thumb spica splint. If they're angulated and displaced, closed reduction. This is actually more challenging than the other fingers, so if you're not sure, call ortho or hand. Obviously, if the fracture is open, if there's neurovascular concerns, if there's greater than one millimeter displacement of intraarticular fractures, that's bad. If you've got a shaft or neck fracture and it's angled more than 20 degrees or there's two millimeters of shortening, hands going to want to know about that as well. Non-displaced fractures can be re-imaged in seven to ten days, and long-term thumb arthritis is the main risk if these don't heal well. All right, now we're going to move to the fingers. In grown-ups, this is the most common fracture, depending on what statistics you look at. And the injuries are more likely distal, then middle, then proximal. The little finger is almost 40% of these fractures. In an adolescence, these are usually sports injuries, while they're occupational injuries in grown-ups. You obviously want to look for tenderness, swelling, and deformity, assessing the MCP, the PCP, and the DIP, Remember, the thumb only has the one IP joint. Rotational deformity, scissoring, is incredibly important to assess for. And you may not know that that's the case that the fingers are extended, but if you get them into flexion and you see that one finger overlaps or underlies another, or if the fingernail position of adjacent fingers is off, then you should be worried and this is going to need reduction. The most sensitive way to assess sensation in the hand is through two-point discrimination. And so that's, you know, getting the paper clip and folding it with two points. X-rays of the finger are AP, lateral, and oblique. If you've got no or minimal displacement, well, you can probably just immobilize. But if there's rotational deformity or lateral deviation, these don't remodel themselves and need to be reduced. If reduction is successful, they get splinted for three weeks. If not, well, a hand surgeon's going to have to deal with that in the operating room. Let's start with fractures of the proximal phalanges. You've got an open physis. These are almost always Salter Harris II fractures. If you have a closed physis, then you're going to see apex volar angulation. So the proximal fragment is pulled into flexion by the interosseus, and the distal fragment is extended by the central slip. For non-displaced proximal phalange fractures that have less than 10 degrees of angulation or less than 2 millimeters of shortening and no rotational deformity, these can be immobilized for three weeks with a splint or buddy tape. One-week follow-up is reasonable, especially if there was a little degree of angulation. Hand's going to need to do open reduction in the OR if... The fracture is extra-articular there's greater than 10 degrees of angulation there's greater than two millimeters of shortening or there's any sort of rotational deformity middle phalange fractures usually occur after a direct blow to the dorsum of the hand the distal ones are usually angulated apex volar the proximal ones are usually angulated apex dorsal obviously ortho or hand needs to get involved for open fractures and neuromuscular deficits Hand surgery referrals also indicated for comminuted fractures, rotational deformities, since a theme there, or fracture that cannot maintain reduction, and these are often the spiral or the oblique fractures. Avulsion fractures involving about 30% or more of the articular surface are unstable as well and require surgical referral. And finally, let's move to the distal finger. And when I went into fellowship, that was the one type of fracture that I wish I had learned more about during residency. The annual incidence is about 2.7% per human, and these are usually from crush injuries, so closed in a door, stepped on, something dropped on the finger. You're going to want to check for sensation, color, and capillary refill. Look for displacement of the nail and the subungual hematoma look at rotation versus the adjacent fingers. Remember that on the volar surface, the flexor digitorum profundus limits how far the distal finger flexes, and the extensor terminal slip limits extension. These can be injured in fractures, and you'll wanna check for both flexion and extension at the PIP. The physis is weaker than the ligaments, so kids with an open physis will generally sustain an injury at the physis as opposed to injuring these ligaments. So for distal tuft fractures, you'll most often see them comminuted. Transverse are more likely than longitudinal ones to be unstable. If they're associated with a nail bed laceration or a subungual hematoma, they're considered open. So you've got to deal with the laceration, which is another podcast in and of itself. The evidence points towards using antibiotics, so seven days of cephalexin, amoxicillin clavulonate, or clindamycin and then follow up in roughly 7 to 10 days. A Seymour fracture is a can't-miss injury that is a displaced Salter-Harris II fracture with a nail bed laceration or a fracture within 1 to 2 millimeters of the physis. And what happens on a Seymour fracture, and I urge you to, to Google a picture of it, is that the proximal nail plate is kind of pulled into or sucked into the fracture line. Ortho or hand needs to clean and debride and reduce, and then patients need to be on antibiotics. Delayed management of a Seymour fracture can result in growth arrest and the persistent mallet deformity. There's a much lower infection and problem rate if these are managed in less than 24 hours. If it's greater than 24 hours, the infection rate is as high as 15%. So if you are worried that a Seymour fracture is happening, don't mess with it. This is one where I would call orthopedics or hand. As long as you don't have a Seymour fracture, you can splint a distal phalange fracture with the DIP extended for two to four weeks. If you see a comminuted fracture, you don't need to reduce it. And in general, these fractures are really stable. And most of you will have access to those moldable padded aluminum splints. These are great. If you're gonna buddy tape, which I think is probably less optimal, especially if you've got a larger fracture, make sure that you put padding in between the digits so that you don't get breakdown, skin irritation, or worse. All right, so that is all I have for a brief review of fractures of the carpals, metacarpals, and the fingers. Remember that hand and finger fractures are incredibly common, especially as kids get older. You have to know when to call for an orthopedics or hand consult. Look for rotational deformity or scissoring this is an extension and flexion. Be wary of the scaphoid fracture. Assess for pain in that anatomic snuff box in anybody who has a hand injury or a wrist injury. X-rays are generally AP lateral and oblique except for that special scaphoid view. And good splints to learn include an onar gutter, radial gutter, thumb spica, and then applying a good finger splint. All right, so that's it for episode four in the fracture season of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast. As I mentioned earlier, you can earn CME and MOC Part Two for this podcast with instructions in the show notes and on pemblog.com. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to PEM Currents on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your audio content. Leave a review. Send me an email or give me feedback on the blog. It will help me continue to do a better job at delivering education to anybody who cares for kids in the emergency department. Follow me on Twitter at PEMTweets and check out my Facebook page at facebook.com PEMTweets. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.